Lord, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beauty of it. We thank you for the sunshine and warmth. We thank you for your physical creation, the way that you uphold us and provide for the needs of our bodies. We thank you above all that you provided the greatest need of our souls as well, that you have redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are now spiritually yours, alive from the dead, enjoying new life in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that life, we thank you for your word that you provided for our guidance. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We ask that you would give us deepened insight into it tonight, that we might appreciate all the more the truths of the gospel, our holy faith, and that you might help us to live in a way that pleases you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We come to Hebrews 1, verse 1, and I'm going to try to cover the first three verses tonight. That doesn't seem like much in terms of literary space, only three verses. However, if you look at the theology of those three verses, it is overwhelming as as to how much is packed into it. We are going to see the doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ as God, the deity of Christ. We're going to see creation, providence, redemption. Uh, it's just amazing how much comes to expression in these three verses, the theme of which I think can best be put as the superiority of Christ over the prophets. Or you might say the superiority of Christ over the former ways of revelation, if you want to put it more generally. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is going to stress Christ is superior to this from the Old Covenant, Christ is superior to that from the Old Covenant, and this further thing, and further and further, and he jumps right into this at the very beginning here by pointing out the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament ways of revelation, the superiority of Christ to the prophets, if you will. Actually, it's rather interesting to look at the opening of the book of Hebrews, not simply for what we find in the explicit wording, but also for what we don't find. What do you not see as we look at the first three verses of Hebrews, which I should take a minute to read, shouldn't I? God, having of old time spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sin, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What is not found in this passage I just read? Anybody? There's no greeting here. This does not begin like an epistle. It does not begin like a letter. It's true that it ends like a letter. You go to the end of the book of Hebrews, it looks very much like the style of, a, of an epistle in the ancient world, but it does not begin that way, and that tips us off to the fact 
that the author is interested in something that goes beyond, something that is a little more formal than an epistle. What we have here is a treatise. In fact, it is the most sustained and logically connected treatise in all the New Testament. The theological development of an idea. The purpose of this particular treatise, which I think explains why it um, is transformed into an epistle by, uh, in form by the time we get to the ending, the purpose of it altogether is given in Hebrews 13, verse 22. But I exhort you, brothers, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written unto you in few words. Again, we can kind of chuckle at that. Few words, it's the most sustained treatise. It's one of the longest and most um, formally developed treatises in the New Testament. But the author considered it but a light few words given to them. Given, however, for your exhortation, a letter of exhortation. So you have a theological treatise that is going to have a very practical, hortatory uh, application to the people. All right, so we begin with what we don't see. Let's uh, now continue with what we do see here in Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, having of old times spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, Uh, a really classic, beautiful uh, statement of the splendor with which God has pursued men in the past. God, who has in the past spoken, and he's spoken in many ways and in many portions, the quantity as well as the quality or methodology of God's revelation in the past has been varied What we have presented here in a rather high literary style in the Greek is a description of God, a pursuing God, who is interested in our lives, who has, in a sense, been chasing men, pursuing them through history. He has done that, revealing himself in various ways, with various messages in the past, but now he has pursued them in history by a son. He has come right into history to make himself known. I'm going to begin elaborating on this general theme that we have introduced by pointing out the distinctiveness of the Christian religion. The distinctiveness of the Christian religion as it presents a God who is a revealing God. You know, we take that for granted. We just assume that in our Christian circles. Well, of course, God's a speaking God. God's a revealing God. God is a teaching God. But that isn't to be taken for granted if you look at the realm of religion or religious practice in general. The vast majority of world religions do not have a revelatory agency because they do not have a God that is either personal enough to have speech and to interact with people, or sovereign enough to be in a position to speak with authority. This is a unique thing in the Christian religion. And um, turn with me, if you will, on that score to Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Habakkuk 2, verses 18 to 20. 
And Doug, maybe I can get you to read that for me. Habakkuk 2, 18 to 20. If you want some help after Nahum. Go ahead. What profit is the graven image that the maker thereof has graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his works trusted therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth keeps silence before him. Oh, I love this passage. I have to be careful. I'll be carried away and talk about it all night. You know what this says? It says, Woe to those that have dumb idols. And then look how it ends. Let all the earth keep silence before the God who speaks. You see, in the pagan world, they have silent gods and speaking followers. Whereas in the Christian world, or the world of biblical revelation, we have a speaking God who commands the silence of his followers. You see how the thing is completely reversed? Now look at that characterization of the pagan world. What profits the graven image? that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image, even the teacher of lies, that he hath fashioned its form and trust in it to make dumb idols. He said, what's the value of having an idol? What's the value of these pagan gods? They don't speak. They're dumb. They can't give any instruction. And so Habakkuk says, woe to him who says to the wood, awake, to the stone, arise, and uh, Doug's translation treated this Hebrew expression differently. Mine makes it a question. I think that's probably better. Shall this teach? Do you expect wood or stone to teach you? Of course not. These dumb idols are no help whatsoever. There's no breath in them. But God speaks. And Jehovah is in his holy temple. And therefore let all the earth be silence before him. And so the distinctiveness of the biblical religion as a religion of revelation. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. Uh, in passing, we can reference uh, that as well. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. Uh, Kathy, would you read that? Here, Paul characterizes the unconverted lives of his readers in their Gentile period, as it were. He says, you know that when you were Gentiles, you were led away unto dumb idols. The only religious possibility for those who are outside the faith, dumb idols. Now you see some of the theological importance of the opening of Hebrews. God, having of old time spoken, God is a speaking God. And what we are told is that God has revealed himself not in some narrow, boring, monotonous, repetitious fashion, but he's used a lot of different styles of speaking. He's made himself known in a lot of different ways. 
and he has uh, parceled out the truth that he wants men to know at various portions, various methods, various aspects of the truth. He has spoken in diverse portions and in diverse manners. Let's think about that. From a biblical standpoint, where is the Word of God found? Where do we find the Word of God? I think the easiest thing for us is to automatically assume Word of God means Scripture. And of course that's so crucial, and especially in our day and age we are tied so closely to Scripture for revelation from God. It's a natural thing for us to think of that, but you see it's very impoverished for us to think only of that. How has God revealed himself? I can't give you an entire seminary course on this subject. It would be possible to do that. But let me just skim over the top of the outline, if you will. We find the word of God, first of all, in God himself. God is his own word. God is his own communication. In a very profound sense, God is the word the revelation. The Trinity. The Father as a speaker, the Son as the Word that is spoken, the Holy Spirit as the breath, which is what spirit means, that bears the Word along. God in his very nature, you see, is a communicating, speaking God. Let's think about an Old Testament manner in which God becomes his own word. How did God reveal himself in the Old Testament? Sometimes by theophany. Is that what you were going to say, David? What does theophany mean? Okay, the appearance or manifestation of God. Theophanas. Theophany is a manifestation, an appearance of God. How did God appear in the Old Testament? Somebody help. I'm sorry? Angel of the Lord is a theophany. He wrestled with Jacob. Uh, possibly Melchizedek is a theophany or a Christophany. Um, so God personally, theophanically, if you will, appears in the Old Testament. Where else is the Word of God found? Well, in a real fascinating way, the name of God is a revelation of God. Where God's name is pronounced, God is made known. Often enough, you will find in the Old Testament that the name of God stands for God himself. We are to worship his name. We are to speak according to his name. His name is upon us. Many ways in which he has made himself known then are tied to his name. But God's decree is his word also. What do we mean by the decree of God? His foreordaining sovereignty by which he governs all things. By his decree God created the world. The Bible says God created the world by speaking. God providentially controls the world. The Old Testament says he controls it by speaking. God brings judgment into this world. He utters his judgment. The nations tremble. 
God brings grace and blessings to this world again by speaking, promising, comforting. And so the decree of God by which he makes things happen, creation and providence, judgment and blessing, this is the word of God also. God has made himself known beyond himself, his name and his decree, in the natural world. Think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1. God has revealed himself, his eternal power, his, his divine nature, through the things that are made. Nature itself is a revelation of God. But then God also speaks to men, just like I speak to you tonight. The Old Testament shows us, shows us God engaging in personal address, having dialogue, or sending a message to various individuals. He spoke with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, and even after the fall, he comes. And notice, it's the voice of God that is walking in the garden. They just can't get away from this. The Old Testament is saturated with the notion of God and his word, a revealing God. God speaks to Noah and saves him. And through Noah, the entire creation is preserved. God speaks to Abraham and calls him into a new place. God speaks to Moses and calls his people out of bondage and organizes their life according to his law word. God speaks to the prophets, get up and go tell them such and such. And of course, Jesus came into this world speaking, calling them, preaching, teaching, comforting them. Not only does God speak to men, but we can add to this that men speak in behalf of God. There is inspired proclamation in the Old Testament. We think of the word of God in the mouths of the prophets. We think of Moses, the prophet par excellence, speaking for God, having come down from Sinai with the law of God. And then finally, we can add to this long list, inscripturated revelation is found in the Old Testament. Beyond personal address and beyond inspired proclamation, there is a written revelation of God given from the very beginning in the genealogies. Why the emphasis upon genealogies in the Bible? Because they're tied into the promise of God that through your seed the Savior will come. The genealogies are a testimony to God. The covenant document at the, at the outset of Israel's history and in terms of which the original books of the Old Testament were written the covenant document is a written um, uh, product that is crucial to the life of God's people, crucial to the covenant and operating in terms of a covenantal relationship with God. Who wrote the covenant document originally? God. On tablets of stone, one gets the idea of endurance, stability, solidity, strength. But God himself did that. 
And of course, then there's the Pentateuch. There are books of history, because God works in history, showing his mighty deeds. There are books of poetry, praising God. There are Proverbs directing our lives. There is prophecy. Did I make my point? Like I say, we could look at each one of those. God himself, the name of God, the decree of God in creation, in providence, in judgment, in blessing, natural revelation, personal address, inspired proclamation, and inscripturated teaching or revelation. God, having of old times spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by divers' portions and in divers' manners. So the book of Hebrews begins. But you see, that's just the setup. That's just background. That's just the foil so that now the punchline finally can be given. God, having done this of old, has done something far greater now. God, who spoke in this way so many different ways, so many different portions in the past, has now at the end of these days spoken unto us by a son. The author points to the uniqueness and to the finality of God's revelation in the person and by means of his son. Something far greater than anything that's gone before. The word of God in the highest, final sense is not all those old ways of revelation, even scripture, but the word of God is above all the Son of God. And I'd like to, um, I'd like to kind of break this down a bit. I'd like to look at different aspects of it. How is it that the Son is the culmination and the unique revelation of God? Well, first of all, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, Christ is the end product, the aim, the focus, the fulfillment of everything that went before. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Don, would you read that for us? For as many as may be promises of God, in him they are yet. Wherefore also by him is our amen the glory of God through us. No matter how many promises of God there were, they are all affirmed and confirmed. Yes and amen in Christ. There is nothing that is found in the Old Testament by way of anticipation and promise that wasn't looking forward to Jesus Christ. By the way, this verse has a very strong reputation of dispensationalism. If you wanted to begin in one place to refute a dispensationalist, I'd begin right here, because dispensationalism is by nature the affirmation that God has two plans, one fulfilled in his Son, the Savior, for the church, but a separate earthly plan for the Jews as a nation. But here we read that God doesn't have two plans. He doesn't have two different kinds of promise. All of God's promises focus on Jesus Christ, the one culminating point, the Old Testament. But I want to add to this. Not only is Christ the culmination of all those former ways of revelation, he is central to the past word of God. Look at Luke, the 24th chapter. 
you've probably heard me preach and teach on this before, but it really is a helpful and key passage for understanding the Old Testament. Luke 24, at the 25th verse, Jesus is rebuking the two followers on the road to Emmaus. And he says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Behooved it not the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And now listen. Beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he, in, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things <coughs> concerning himself. Christ, you see, is the message of the Old Testament. Not only is he the culmination of everything the Old Testament anticipated, the yes and amen of all the promises, but he in all the scriptures is the subject matter, too. And so Christ is the culmination of the Old Testament. Christ is central to the Old Testament. But you know, there's something unique about Christ as the revelation. Unique in, in a way that... Um, None of the Old Testament could claim, none of the prophets of old could claim, Christ not only fulfills the Word of God, Christ is the Word of God. God has spoken by means of a Son. It's interesting that the book of Hebrews does not say here, God has spoken by means of the Son, which would be taken in the sense of His Son. That that, of course, would be the same denotation. That's what the author is talking about, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But by not using the definite article, the point he's trying to make is, this is a Son revelation. This is not just a verbal revelation, not just a theophanic revelation, not just um, a proclamation. This is a revelation that is Son-like in its character. This is the revelation in its highest form, the revelation by means of a son. What better revelation could there be? And what passage in the New Testament, I'm just going to be ashamed of you all if you cannot tell me what passage in the New Testament drives this home to our hearts, parallels this so much, that Jesus Christ is the highest expression of the Word of God, being the very Word himself. Bat? <laughs> I'll let you say it. Okay, John 1, verse 1. Let's turn to it together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But here's the startling thing. And the Word was God. There's a sense in which God is his very Word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, the life that is the light of men. In verse 14 we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What was incarnate among us? Well, you could put it a lot of ways. You could say it was the Son of God that was incarnate among us. It was God himself who entered into this world among us. But here, John stresses, it was God as Word that came to be among us, the very Word of God. The Son of God is the Word of God, and as such, is the final, the highest, and the finest expression 
of God's revelation. And notice the way in which this revelation is in another category from all the prophets of old. How this word and how this teacher is different from everything that has gone before. Well, in the first place, if you want to pay detailed attention to the wording of our text, we would have to um, comment on the difference between the plural for the word prophets and the singular used in the word sons. God has spoken in the past by prophets, of which there were many, plural. But God has now spoken singularly, uniquely, and above all, by a son. So where there were many prophets, there's only one son. That stresses how he's in another category from them. Another way, though, is that everything that God said in the past was, in a sense, fragmentary, incomplete, and transitory. Divers' portions, divers' manners. But in no one place, at no one time, in no one method is God's full revelation made until we get to a son. He's not fragmentary. He is not incomplete. He is not transitory. He is the word of God par excellence, full of grace and truth. And thirdly, the author here stresses that this revelation, by means of a son, a singular son versus the plural prophets, a son, a revelation that is not transitory or fragmentary, this revelation, he says, is part of the final age. Notice that emphasis. God has, at the end of these days, spoken by a son. We've reached the final time. We have reached the eschatological age, by which we mean the final age, the last things. God has finally brought us to the terminal period. This is the climax of the crescendoing revelations that have gone before. He has finally now said his ultimate word in his Son. We see then the theme of the superiority of Christ to the prophets or to the revelation of the Old Testament period. God having of old time spoken the uniqueness of biblical faith, the speaking, teaching God. In the past, the speaking God has spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners. But now, at the end of these days, has spoken to us by a son. So much there. I want to digress from the main theme, though, and discuss for a moment or two this notion of it being the last days. At the end of these days, in terms of the biblical breakdown and understanding of history, we do not have many more dispensations to go through, many more regimes or periods, definable eras 
before God can finally terminate human history. We live in the last days. Now, Noah couldn't say that. Moses and Abraham and David and even the Old Testament prophets couldn't say that. Every one of them enjoyed successive additions to God's covenantal arrangements with men. God made a covenant with Noah, but then he made a covenant with Abraham. That wasn't the end of the matter, though. He made a further covenant with Moses that was even more fully defined in his covenant with David. But then God promised that he was going to make a new covenant. And that new covenant has come in Jesus Christ at the end of the ages. We see um, in the New Testament that expression used often, that we live in the final times. In fact, if you read 1 John, you'll notice that John says, little children, it is the last hour. In terms of the conception of the New Testament writers, our backs are right up against the end of history. Everything that had to come by way of preparation has come. God has now established his kingdom. He has brought the new covenant. He has crowned his son. We are in the final days. Now, the final days are going to be a long time by human reckoning, already 2,000 years, roughly. In my own personal opinion, it's probably going to be thousands more. But my point is, whether it's 2,000, 3,000, or 10, they're all cataloged as the last days. We live at the end of human history. Look at 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. First Corinthians 10. And um, verse 11. Verse 11. I wonder if I can get uh, Scott to read that. Now all these things happen to them for an example. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world are come. We look at the Old Testament, we take a moral example from it, remembering that everything written there was written for our admonition. And then notice how Paul describes us, upon whom the ends of the ages, the end of the world in some translations, has come. See, we've been put into the eschatological age. Again, our backs are up against the end of history. Nothing further needs to be done in terms of categorical change, new additions to God's work in history. We've now reached the last inning. And the only thing that remains is for Christ to return after the promises that he's made for this age have been fulfilled. Okay. I need to move on. I can't believe the amount of theology here. Now we are told about this son who is the unique, culminating, final revelation of God in the final days. Verse 2 says, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. 
who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power when he made purification for sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high seven descriptions of Jesus Christ the Son of God whom we already know to be the very word and revelation of God par excellence seven senses in which Jesus qualifies as a superior revelation to anything that's found in the Old Testament first of all we read that he <coughs> has been appointed by God heir of all things. What do we mean by an heir? John, do you know? Related. What's that? Related. Oh, wait, no. He Heirs sometimes are related, but what I more? Inheritance. inheritance and the word heir go together. The heir is the one who receives the possessions of someone else. The heir is one who has a promise coming, who receives an inheritance. God has appointed Jesus Christ the heir of all things. Now I want to ask you, as the Son of God in his eternal nature, or if you will, as God the Son, did he need to have everything appointed to him? No, we should be nodding. No. As very God of very God, everything is by nature his. And so the fact that the author of Hebrews speaks of this being appointed to him indicates that he's thinking of Jesus here in his human nature, or as we put it theologically, thinking of him not in his divine, eternal status, but in his mediatorial office as the one who came to be the mediator between God and men, as the God-man and Savior of God's elect. He has been appointed heir of all things. Well, Greg, what's the distinction between um, the two? As, far as, as God, he is the possessor of all things. As God the Son, as God the Son, he is possessor of all things. As the successful Messiah, as the mediator, he has been granted all things. That is, as the God-man who has accomplished redemption and risen from the dead, he now has all things coming to him in virtue of his office and not simply his eternal divine nature. So God the Father appointed him. Well, yes, God the Father appointed it to his Son, but not in virtue of his Son as eternally God, but in virtue of his as the God-man who became mediator, Messiah, so forth. But that distinction is an important one. Christ has accomplished something in his human nature as the God-man that goes beyond what is the situation 
of the eternal Son totally apart from the Incarnation. Here he has been appointed this. And a very nice commentary on the uh, concept is Psalm 2, verse 8. Psalm 2, verse 8. Maybe I can get uh, David Hagopian to read that. God says to his son, the one whom everyone must kiss or perish in the way, he says to his messianic son, ask of me and I will give you the nations and the uttermost parts of the earth for your inheritance. Christ has become the heir, the inheritor of everything in virtue of his messianic office the God-man who has entered into this world to secure our salvation is now the one who possesses everything. Colossians 1 verse 15 does not use this language, but I'm going to have us read it and challenge you to tell me why I think it has, at least as part of its meaning, is saying the same thing as what we've just said. Colossians 1:15. Uh, Marilyn uh, Manzer, can you read that for us? All right, the image of the invisible God. We're going to be talking about that in a moment, language similar to that used in Hebrews 1. But notice this, the firstborn of all creation. Yeah. Those who have an, what's called an Arian Christology, uh, following the views of Arius, who is a, a person, a heretic, that was condemned at the Council of Nicaea. Those who held to his view often quoted this verse to prove that Jesus could not be, that the Son could not be equal with the Father because he's firstborn of all creation. Taken in the sense of he was the first thing born into creation. He was the first created thing. But if you understand the ancient world, this language need not be taken in the literal sense of the one who was actually born and made first in creation. What happens to a firstborn son in the ancient world? The firstborn son either inherits everything or in at least the Jewish law, he was to have a double portion. The point is the, the uh, superior position of inheritance is granted to the firstborn. I think what Paul is saying here has nothing to do with Jesus being created or the first thing made or born, but rather is thinking of firstborn in the social sense of the inheritor, the heir. He is the heir of all creation, the firstborn of all creation, meaning all creation comes to him, belongs to him. 
Is Jesus the only one who inherits the created world? Who else does? Joint heirs. Lowell? Uh, joint heirs of Christ. Ah, yes. I've taught you all well. You're moving right down toward the same conclusion that I'm looking for. Exactly right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 and 22. And I don't know who have Marilyn Harrier. Would you read that? So then, let no one boast in men. All things belong to you, whether Paul or Paulus, or Stephen, to the world, or life or death, or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Notice this: everything belongs to us. That in itself is worthy of a sermon, maybe some extended discussion. You realize this world is ours? We can go out there and say, you know, this whole world belongs to us because we're children of the king. But Paul makes it clear that the way in which everything is ours, be it the world, life, death, things present, or things to come, the way that all things are ours is that we are Christ. Since we are united to him and belong to him, since he is our master, since we are seen with him theologically, everything, everything that is his is ours, or as Lowell has already pointed out. In Romans, the eighth chapter, Paul speaks of us as joint heirs with Christ. What are we joint heirs of? What, what are we going to receive? Well, Hebrews tells us he's heir of everything. The whole world. All things. Who being... Wh whom he appointed heir of all things. Okay, let's move on to the next description. Through whom also he made the world. Christ is not only the mediatorial Savior who has inherited the uttermost parts of the earth, all things in the world, but he is the one who made everything. Notice verse 10. Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. This is a quotation from Psalm 102. Applied now to Jesus Christ, as the person who, at the very beginning of time, at the very outset of the, um, the world as we know it, laid the foundation of the earth and set the heavens in place. Christ is presented elsewhere in the New Testament as the Creator. We found this in John 1, didn't we? Verses 1 and 2. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and it was this word, by means of this word, that God created the world. Let's look at Colossians 1.16 also. Colossians 1.16. Al, could you read that for us? 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Right. What is excluded from that list, do you think, Al? What is it that Christ didn't make then? If he made all things, right, in the heavens, on earth, thrones, principalities, it doesn't make any difference where you look. He made it all. Nothing was left out. Well, if everything that was made was made by him, was he made? No. He's the eternal creator because everything created came from him. Look at 1 Corinthians 8.6. Jamie, would you read that? There's but one creator God. Paul doesn't hesitate to speak of this one creator God as being personally father and son, though, through whom both made the world. Now this points to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He existed before the created universe, and as such it points also to the coexistence of Jesus with the Father. There's nothing made that he didn't make. He's the creator of all things. Could we say that part of him that was God was, uh, has always been, but that part which was man when he came into existence, when he did, when uh, he became flesh? That's right. The, etern the divine nature of Christ is eternal, has always been. The human nature had a beginning point in history. Did we say the human nature is gone, uh, died on the cross? Or is there a human nature uh, at the right hand of the Father? We would say that the human nature died upon the cross and was raised in glory from the dead, and now is at the right hand of God the Father. Not separate from the divine nature, mind you, but Christ died with respect to his humanity. Exactly. That it wasn't just a momentary thing like Christ says, I'll wear this suit for a while, but then I'm going to give it to goodwill or throw it away. <laughs> no. Christ, when he took on human nature, took on human nature forever. He is now the God-man. But the point is, his divine nature is eternal. His human nature had a beginning in time. Yeah, we're looking at Christ as the creator, and therefore we're looking at him particularly in his divine nature. Isn't that interesting? As heir of all things, the emphasis is upon his human nature, his mediatorial office. As creator of all things, the author of Hebrews has emphasized his divine nature, which is eternal. There's another application of this, if I can digress again. 
we talked about this being the final age and how dispensationalism is wrong and how we should see history. This phrase helps us to understand the physical world, the material world. If he is the heir of all things, including the physical world, and if he made all things, including the world, should we think of the material world as somehow unspiritual or of less value as being perhaps unethical or wicked or bad, debased, gross? I'm not asking good questions. You're supposed to know the answer from the very way I put that, aren't you? I'm telegraphing what the uh, right answer is. Of course not. If Christ made and inherits the world, how can it be debased? How can it be gross or evil? And again, this is revolutionary in its philosophical and ethical import. Most other religions of the world have a very hard time with the question of body and soul, or spirit and matter, light and darkness. And many are dualistic, thinking that things associated with the physical world are bad and at best a temptation and a drag on the good spiritual being of man. But not the Bible. The Bible says that everything created is good. After all, what else could it be? if Christ made it and inherits it. Yes. Well, I think that maybe we weren't thinking of it in its intrinsic value, but as Paul... Well, it is subject to the effects of the fall. Romans 8 tells us the whole creation groans and travails together waiting for our adoption, which is to say waiting for our resurrection so that the uh, effects of redemption have... Uh, encompassed everything. But that isn't to say that the physical world is itself fallen. The physical world is not a moral being. The physical world is a matter of valuation by moral beings. And the point is that we as moral beings should value the physical world positively and highly as something good, a blessed thing of God. We should enjoy our physical bodies we should be happy about being in the midst of physical history. We should think of this world as um, uh, something appropriate to us and good for us, where the glory of God is to be realized by us. Okay, And so we're very world-affirming people. We're not against money or food or sex or good times. Of course, we're against any of those if they're pursued idolatrously or selfishly or unlovingly, pursued in a way that's not to the glory of God. But according to 1 Timothy 5, all things are good. Everything's been created. And if it's sanctified by the word and prayer, it's to be enjoyed by God's people. Well, I, these are just some parenthetical implications that we can draw from the fact that God created, Christ created the world. I have to move on or I'm not going to finish here. In verse 3, we get into some heavy theology, some heavy metaphysical teaching about Christ. Not only is he the heir of all things and the creator of all things, but now verse 3 says, 
He is the effulgence of God's glory in the very image of his substance. This, these two expressions stress the way in which Christ is one with the Father and yet distinct from the Father. And that's why I say the doctrine of the Trinity is implicit in this passage as well. God is one. The three persons of the Trinity make not three gods, make one God. Each of the members of the Trinity is completely and wholly, not partially, God. And yet they are not identical. They are distinct persons. And uh, I have a, a lengthy discussion of this in our Calvin seminar tape says Calvin deals with the doctrine of the Trinity in the Institutes of the Christian Religion that you may want to listen to if you're interested in the subject. But this is a, a fascinating thing about the doctrine of the Trinity. Oneness and manyness. All are, are fully God, all these persons, and yet they are not the same person. They are distinct persons. And this comes out here in Hebrews 1 verse 3 where the co-substantiality of the Son with the Father is seen in that he is the effulgence of his glory and yet that he's a distinct person while being the very same as to deity. That he's a distinct person is the emphasis of the very image of his substance. Let's look at these expressions. First of all, the effulgence of his glory. In some translations, maybe one that you have this evening, it will say he is the reflection of his glory, or words to that effect, in which case you might think of verses like John 1.14. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. He is the reflection of the Father's glory. You might think of Second uh, Corinthians 4.6 the glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ that shines on us. However, I do think it is better translated, not the reflection of glory, but the very radiant light of. The word reflection can be translated, if you will, the radiant light. You see how the two are related to one another. By saying that he is the radiant light of God's glory, I mean, it's, it's kind of like asking... Um, can you separate the shape and the size of an apple? Uh, if you're going to have an apple that has shape, you're going to have an apple that has size. And if you have an apple that has size, you're going to have an apple that has shape. These things can be thought of, they're different aspects of, or different ways of seeing that one thing, they can't be separated. Likewise, can the radiance of God's glory be separated from the glory? Can the glory be separated from the radiance? No, it's a way of saying he is the very glory of God, isn't he? By the way, um, if you go to the end of the verse, we are told that he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. If you look at uh, 2 Peter 1.17, kind of a cross-reference there, similar kind of expression, and 
it's in terms of the glory of God that I, I want us to note that. Second Peter one seventeen, I better read. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there was born such a voice to him by the majestic glory. At the transfiguration, don't you see, when Christ's glory was being manifest, it was the very glory of God. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer of John 17, 5, asked that God the Father restore to him the glory that I had with you before the world was. And so Hebrews here is not speaking of Christ as a separate being from the glory of God, but speaking of him as the very radiance of the glory of God. I love this expression. See how it just magnifies. Jesus is God's glory. He's the very radiance of God. He is God. And yet, he is the very stamp of God's nature. And that expression in uh, Greek, by the way, is the one used of a die made for um, making a coin. And therefore, what it expresses is the idea of exactness, exact correspondence, in the same way that every coin comes out looking exactly like the stamp that made it. So Jesus Christ is the very stamp of the essence of God. He exactly corresponds to God, even while being a distinct person from the Father. One can't help but think here of John 12, verse 45, where Jesus said, He who sees me sees him who sent me. Or John 14, 9, the one who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. He is the exact stamp of the very essence of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul spoke of Christ as the likeness or image of God. And so we have in verse 3 the essence, the fundamentals of the doctrine of the Trinity. For there Jesus is presented as co-substantial with the Father. In fact, he is the shining light of his glory, so identical are they. And yet he is distinct from the Father, being the stamp of his essence, the very exact correspondence to his nature. And so you have both unity and diversity. Um, plurality of person, to be sure, and yet identity of substance. Well, we need to hurry to our conclusion. Hebrews points not simply to Christ in his deity in verse 3, but also to his providential government of the universe. We read that he upholds all things by the word of his power. The word uphold will point to not simply supporting everything. It does teach that. The idea being that if Christ were not sustaining the universe, it would fall into non-existence. It would no longer be. And so the very, um, the very uh, material existence of things relies upon the sustaining word of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.17 says that in him all things hold together. He's the nucleus of all things, if you want to put it that way. It's by his power 
of the material universe um, continues to exist. But the Greek phrase that we find in Hebrews 1.3 that says he upholds all things is a word that means to carry forward, not simply to uphold, but to carry along. And so we get the idea of a, of a goal in history, that everything is moving toward its end because of Jesus Christ, because of his sustaining, his directing, his governing, his overseeing of all things. And how does he do this? Hebrews tells us, by the word of his power. The one who is the very word of God speaks his word, which is a powerful word, a dynamic word, a word that has dynamite power to it, if you will, to affect things in the world. And so Jesus speaks, and the world is as it is. The world is sustained as it's sustained, and it moves forward in the way that it moves forward, all because of the dynamic word of Jesus Christ himself, the Creator of all things. Well, we come then to one final expression in Hebrews 1, verse 3. We read that when he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The previous descriptions of Jesus Christ were all somewhat timeless or axiomatic in the sense that they point to things that he does continually or what he is at all times. However, at the end of this verse, we come to something that he has done once and for all in history, in the past, has accomplished and has put an end to. This is not his continuing providence, his continuing deity, but he has entered into history and at a particular point in the past, once and for all, did something. And what he did is that he made purification for sins. I'm not going to labor on this right now because the entire book of Hebrews is going to stress this aspect of our salvation, the high priestly work of Christ in purifying us from the pollution of our sins. Uh, but just to point out that here the author already telegraphs what is going to be his theme, the purification of sins in our salvation. And Christ did that once and for all, and when he was done, he took his seat. You know, there was no furniture, there were no chairs in the tabernacle or temple, uh, which should remind us that the work of the Old Testament priest, the high priest of the Old Testament, was never done. When purification had been made by animal sacrifice, it had to be repeated daily. And it had to go on year after year after year because the blood of bulls and goats was never good enough to truly atone for sin. But now we read that when Jesus Christ made purification, when he laid down his life in the place of sinners, when he as the great high priest offered his sacrifice before the throne of God, he sat down. The work was done. It never was to be repeated because he had completed it all. And where did he sit? Well, this is to, you know, add something to the description. He not only made purification and completed the work and sat down, but he sat down in the highest place of honor. He sat down at the right hand of God. And so the author of Hebrews is going to stress not only the purification of sins in the redemptive work of Christ, but he's going to stress the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's going to stress what is called his heavenly session at the right hand of God. When he did his work as the Messiah, 
He came into this world in humility, born to a poor couple, uh, rejected of men, living a life of poverty, finally betrayed, deserted by all who were with him, and dying alone on the cross, a miserable criminal's death. And so the Messiah um, ministered in humiliation for us. But the Bible says, as in Philippians, the second chapter, he is now highly exalted. He did not stay in the grave. God raised him from the dead, and he ascended on high, and now sits at the right hand of God. And there continues his work as the Messiah. In Mark 14:62, Jesus told the high priest at his trial, You will see me at the right hand of God. In Acts, the seventh chapter, verses 55 and 56, Stephen, as he was being stoned, saw Jesus at the right hand of God in a heavenly vision. Philippians 2, as I've already indicated, tells us that he is now uh, exalted on high and has a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow to him. And so the author of Hebrews stresses the ascension and the exaltation of Christ as a reason for adhering faithfully to him. What is Christ doing at the right hand of God? Is he just sitting there waiting for history to come to its conclusion? No, the Bible tells us that he went as a forerunner for us. Hebrews 6, verse 20 says, He went ahead for us. Even as Jesus said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you. He is there working and preparing for our entrance into glory. In Hebrews 7.25, the author will stress that he is making intercession for God's people, making intercession for the saints there at the right hand of God. And so there you have it, Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. The first argument, a glorious argument from the author of Hebrews, as to why we should not drift away from the Christian faith, why we shouldn't be tempted to become apostates, to turn away from Christ, to uh, go back into the Jewish faith, if you will. Because what could be better than to have a religion that is focused on one who is the very Son of God, the heir of all creation, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, very God of very God, the one who is our Savior, and finally who is our Lord. I mean, these are heavy theological arguments. With that kind of Lord to be followed, with that kind of... Uh, Savior, who could ever turn away? What could any religion, what could the Jewish faith and shadows of the Old Testament offer that could be superior to the one who is the Son, the Heir, the Creator, the Sustainer, very God, our Savior and Lord? Another way we can summarize these three verses is in terms of the traditional three offices attributed to Jesus Christ of prophet, priest, and king. As the prophet, he is the one through whom the final word of God has been spoken to us. As the priest, he made purification for our sins. And as the king, he's now enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high and is there making intercession for us. It should be obvious to us then that these first three verses of Hebrews lay a foundation not only for the elaboration that is to come theologically in terms of the exhortation of the author. But these three verses in and of themselves present a, a bulwark, an, uh, an argument that just cannot be overthrown as to the superiority of Christ 
to the prophets of old, to anything that the Old Testament had to offer. Let's see to it that we don't waver in our faith, but rather keep firmly before our minds these attributes of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we get together next time, we'll begin with verse 4. Good night.